Hi, everybody. It's Elizabeth Archer. Welcome to another episode of the Farm and Garden Show. Always a delight to be back with you. If you noticed a little funkiness with the music at the top of the hour, don't worry about it. It shouldn't infect, uh, in, in fact, it shouldn't impact our conversation. As always, I want to give a shout out to my daughter, May, who, as I knew she would, was a truly iconic flower girl. It is a role she was born to do. My guest today is Marie Hoff of Full Circle Wool, based in Potter Valley. Committed to a healthy future, Full Circle Wool works to connect people with the land they inhabit in a deep, meaningful, nourishing way. We are going to talk about all things wool, wool shed, fiber shed, mending, all that good stuff. Um, I will say we're on Zoom, but I can see that Marie is actively knitting something. Welcome, Marie, and what are you knitting? Um, yeah, I need, I always need something to do, you know, I always need something working on. Um, I'm knitting a square. I'm Perfect. not actually that great <laughs> of a knitter or fiber artist. <laughs> like You know, I everyone... host the farm and garden show and I don't farm and I barely garden. So right. I feel you. it's aspirational. <laughs> um, well, thank I really you so much for joining me. Oh yeah, sure. <laughs> I'm happy to. Um, yeah, I just, I really, I got into this more out of the like agriculture, uh, sheep, animal husbandry end. And I've gotten more involved in the fiber end um, really just because it, it it's there. You know, everyone has their sort of different entrance points into the things they like and they do, I notice. And some people get interested in sheep and in wool out of being really interested in fiber arts and in like crafting um other people like me it's the other way around um i got interested in sheep and in agriculture and thereby began learning about fiber arts well give me a little bit of your background like where do you come from how long have you been in mendo are you a i think you were in, in sonoma which we're going to talk about so just give me a quick rundown of the history of marie <laughs> yeah well on march 17th 1983 <laughs> um uh i i grew up in southern california actually in kind of a suburban sort of background and i um really didn't know very much about agriculture or anything rural until i was in my later 20s i had moved up to the bay area to go to school and then after school just kind of stayed in Oakland and, um, you know, it was the recession. So everyone was just sort of like, what are we doing? How is this all going to work? And, uh, out of that, I started feeling like, you know, I've worked at farmer's markets for like six years now in the Bay area and I really like it, but it's not exactly like stable or a career path or anything, you know, like, what am I, what am I doing? Um, and that kind of took me down the path of like, well, how do you, you know, like, how do you advance your career at the farmer's market? <laughs> it's like, oh, wait, you go and you work on a real farm, I think. Uh, <laughs> and so, and I, then I, of course, I was like, I've been working for farmers for six years, like many different farmers, never been on a real working farm before. Like I'd been to a pumpkin patch. Interesting, kind of but never, never a real farm. And I saw my first sheep at age 28. Wow. Fact, 
Like there's a picture of me when I'm maybe like four or something at a petting zoo with some goats and I look pretty happy with the goats, but it was I written have, in your childhood. You just took I a have, while to get to I it. I have no memory of, uh, <laughs> of sheep until age 28. And then, you know, I just like dove all in. Um, and at first I was going up to West Sonoma area to places like Bodega Pastures and uh, helping with the sheep there and learning and uh, traveling to other places. I went to Southern Oregon and New Zealand and different places to learn more about sheep. And, and along the way, I kind of just ended up learning about fiber arts. Like when I was in Southern Oregon, the sheep farmer there, she, she was just like, you have to learn how to spin. And I was like, Oh, okay, sure. And she was like, no, you have to Oh, <laughs> and she just sat she me down. down. She sat me down and she was like, you're going to learn this while you're here. Uh, and I did. I learned how to spin while I was there. Um, like on a spinning wheel? On a spinning wheel. And I actually got like like travel sick or like seasick the first time doing it. I, like I had to leave. I had to go for a walk, go outside and get some air. So yeah, because it's that like enormous rocking, rotating wheel right in your in your eyes focusing so hard but she was like i've never had anybody get sick from teaching them how to spin <laughs> uh so i guess i was i was the first for that um but then uh then i start i ended up um it's probably too long of a story to go into but i, I ended up with a flock of my own sheep i started with seven sheep in west sonoma and we were grazing vineyards and apple orchards and uh, sometimes just doing grazing for like fire clearance, that kind of thing. Um, there was one place we did in Santa Rosa where like literally like the fire marshal came and they inspected. Um, and so we grazed that and we, we passed inspection. Nice. With that. You said that was in 2013. In I started, yeah. Right. And that was called Capella Grazing Project. Yeah. I named it after the Shepherd's Star. Little did I know that five years later I was going to move to Potter Valley, which and is right really like Calpella. <laughs> yeah. It's right next. It's not in Calpella. It's right next to Calpella. And so, <laughs> uh, confusion relating to that. But at that point, I had actually, I'd already started doing my other project which is sourcing wool from other ranches um you know like large-scale commercial ranches not just the um you know less than 100 sheep that i run and well and let's not let's not jump ahead of ourselves because i do want to have a long conversation about that but um, i'm interested in your first flock um which is a heritage breed can you tell me about that and if you yeah. still have them and if so like how many you have and why you chose the breed you have yeah, well, I like to say that they chose me. Sure. Because um, I, at the time, I wasn't planning on getting sheep yet. I felt like way, I'm way too much of a novice. And and I was also, I was primarily in Sonoma. And, you know, I was like, I had no expectation that I would ever be able to own land. So the idea that I would own sheep seemed like that should come later than that. Um but I started learning more about contract grazing and I was working for a, uh, a woman who has since actually relocated. She was in Santa Rosa and she's moved to Illinois now. Um, 
to be with her grandkids. But uh, she was really interested in these rare fiber breeds. She got really interested in this breed called Wessant, which is a French breed. It's spelled O-U-E-S-S-A-N-T. Very French. And, yeah, very French. Um, they're the smallest known sheep in the world. And they Aww, are also known for their really pure, saturated, jet black fleece, which is pretty rare in sheep. Um, usually when people talk about black wool, um, what they actually mean is like various shades of gray or brown. Um, when I talk about black wool, I mean dark, saturated black wool. Like it's absorbing um, a lot of light. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they really need to be shorn by this time of year. Do you shear your own sheep, Marie? I can. I went to shearing school in Hopland. Oh, yeah. Cool. At the um, uh, the Hopland Research and Extension Center. Yep. They do that every year. Yeah. And uh, I learned how hard it is. And I did some grazing for myself and for others. And then I learned that it's really, really wonderful to have somebody come out and shear them for you so i pay <laughs> someone to come shear this year we had ruthie king out to i share. was gonna say was it ruthie king yeah <laughs> did her baby come with her uh not those times no but um but he's great he's a great baby yeah he loves watching <laughs> watching his mama get down and dirty with shearing yeah ruthie's pretty cool Ruthie is cool. Ruthie used to host the show and she's been a guest on the show and this is definitely a, a Ruthie Stan radio show. So <laughs> Ruthie, if you're listening, we're we love you. singing your praises. <laughs> okay, so you you ended up with this flock of French Wissant sheep from yep. someone who sounds like had them and then couldn't have them anymore. Or? She kind of like, she was in a place where she wanted more than she could sustain. She had a five acre place and uh, she wanted to get, there's this breeder out on the East coast who was raising them and had, I guess you could say she had like 10 extra. She had 10 who she had been, um, breeding them up so she started with shetland sheep and she got genetics from europe and did ai artificial insemination and had been slowly uh working up the percentage to get to purebred but she had these ewes that were i think they were like 63.5 percent and at that point she didn't actually have a use for them because she'd gotten higher percentage use at that point so she was like i'm not going to use these use I'm gonna use these use right and uh so leslie was like she was like we've got to get them out here like we've got to get this breed out here like there's only like at the at that time 2013 there were like 60 wasant sheep in the u.s and none on the west coast yes. and wow but Leslie already had sheep. She had some Icelandic sheep and she just didn't have space to, to take all 10. And I had been working with her a bit I'd been farm sitting with her and I'd been talking about contract grazing and vineyards. And she was like, oh, Marie, these are the sheep. Like, you've got to get them. And I was like, Leslie, you're crazy. I've only been working with sheep for a year and I don't own land. And like, where am I going to put them? And she was just kind of like, you'll figure it out. <laughs> um, well, and you clearly did. 
I kind yeah, I did. I will say the caveat is that like sometimes people have heard me tell the story and they're like, great, I can do that. And I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> I, this is a cautionary tale. This is not a like how to do it tale. Um, but, it, you know, like variously, like throughout throughout the years, like we have made it work. And I now actually have 64 sheep. And oh my gosh, all the Wissant breed? Um, almost. We actually, we've gotten to a place with the breeding where we can't breed any more and we can't get any more genetics from Europe. Mm. So I've actually introduced a black Welsh mountain ram into the flock. So we have him, he's pure black Welsh mountain. And then we have a few of his babies are Wissant, Shetland, black Welsh mountain crosses. And do they come out jet black too? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. He, he has a really dark, like, I think the, the black Welsh mountain sheep are really like the most comparable in terms of color. Like you could call you, I don't think like many other sheep place you could call like dark jet black like that, but the black Welsh mountain I think is on par with the Wisant. Well, and genetic diversity is maybe worth a couple minor shades of black. Yeah. <laughs> um, so- but yeah. So I started grazing them around. Yeah. Can you explain a little bit for folks who maybe aren't familiar with contract grazing? Sure. Um, Basically, the idea is that they're essentially, they're little lawnmowers that you rent out, but they're really so much more because they aren't just coming in, cutting things back all at the same level and then leaving and like potentially leaving a whole bunch of like dry vegetable matter that's just going to, you know, catch fire later on there. They like perform a whole function. So they come in and um, they graze down because they're being paid, you know, by the acre Mm -hmm. or by the day or something like that. There's incentive there for the sheep to move quickly and efficiently, as opposed to like, if you're raising them for meat or something like that um and you like only own so much land there's not as much incentive to move them so quickly so it's actually contract grazing is very good for the landscape because the sheep are getting in sheep and or goats are are getting in and they're really just they're grazing the amount that the land needs and then they're leaving and they're letting it rest so and there's is there like a fertilizer element during that period of time? Too? Yeah, exactly. They, yeah. So they're like little gardeners. They go in and they graze things down to like various different heights. So as opposed to a mower, you're getting these little, like little niche areas where um, different kinds of communities of, you know, like bugs and little animals and birds and things can grow and replenish. Um, they're also creating litter. So they're like crunching up some of that vegetation and leaving essentially like a mulch for next year. And then they're also spreading their manure and their urine, which is the perfect combo, turns out, um, of NPK, nitrogen, potassium, uh, phosphate. Is that right? I don't know. Nitrogen? Sounds good. Okay. What, a, what a shock that nature was perfectly designed for the yeah right head. makes you sort of scratch your head like oh wait why was that ratio the best in the first place i know that animal grazing is a major component of regenerative organic agriculture so mm-hmm. are you 
do you still do contract grazing with your yeah. Are you finding that um, the places you're going either are regenerative organic or are working toward regenerative organic certification? Um, some of the places we go are certified organic. Uh, a lot of the places that I do, because I'm relatively small scale, are actually just like private places. Mm -hmm. um, fire so suppression primarily. Mostly fire suppression, yeah. yeah. Um, but for having the sheep, you know, they have to be essentially organic because I can't take the sheep anywhere where they're going to get, where they're going to like ingest um, any kind of like synthetic totally. toxins or anything like that. So we still, we do vineyards, we do orchards, we do um, just places that need the brush and grasses mowed down. Um, typically we're inland since we're in Potter Valley, we're doing like um, Lake County, Sometimes for vineyards, we'll go out to Napa and then other places in inland Mendocino. And um, then usually we take a break during the summer because if there's any kind of fire or reason to evacuate, I just, I don't want them out on a contract somewhere far away from me. I want them right here so I can either, you know, sort of hunker down with them in Potter Valley or uh, just evacuate all of them all at once. Um but uh, we recently started taking uh, contracted work out on the coast. So if you're on the Mendocino coastline and you have a whole lot of um, brush and dry grasses and things like that that you want to clear out for uh, fire concerns, um, that's something that we can now do. And that, is that something you're more likely to do in the summer just because, I mean, the mm -hmm. coast is certainly not no fire threat, but it's a reduced fire threat compared to some right. Of the areas. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so anywhere we go, um, we either have like a home base where we will park our trailer and stay out there or on the site of the, the place um, we'll, we'll sometimes uh, park the trailer there and, and that's just, that's where I, or if I have somebody working for me, um, we'll stay at night. Cool. How did you go from Sonoma to Potter Valley? Oh yeah. <laughs> um, well, we had the opportunity to buy a small parcel. It's two and a half acres. So it's certainly not enough to sustain 60 sheep year round. Um, but that's our home base and that's where we lamb. And um, that was kind of a, a big move for us and also like a bit of a big shock for my system because we moved in June of 2017. So yeah. if you know what that means, that means A, that was June. So I went from Bodega Bay never being above like 80 degrees for about five years to, to all of a sudden. And that week that we moved, it was like, it got up to like 110, 115, and uh, we didn't have air conditioning. And I was like, what did we do? Like, I mean, they're I The sheep were fine. They adjusted pretty easily. But I was like, oh, God. Um, I moved here from Seattle 11 years ago. So yeah. Ukiah to the Valley. So I definitely yep. feel that transition. I also moved yeah. to June. Well, the other part of that is that it was June of 2017 and it was in October of 2017 that we had the first of those like really massive fires. Right, and it the went Redwood right complex fires, yeah. Along, yeah, right along the edge of, of Potter Valley. And um, so less, when was that? June, July, August, September, October, like four months into living here, we evacuated for the first time. 
And uh, that that was our intro <laughs> to Inland Living. Trial by fire, literally. <laughs> it was, yes. Well, I hope since then, Potter Valley has started to feel like home to you. That's where my husband and his family are from. So I spend yes. a lot of time out there too. It's 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 beautiful. And also, I know, just like you, Kaya, it gets real hot. So although really? we're enjoying a long, chill spring. So, you know, knock on wood that... Maybe the season won't be so horrifyingly hot. Let me take a second to reintroduce you. This is the Farm and Garden Show. I am your host, Elizabeth Archer. I am interviewing Marie Hoff of Full Circle Wool, which is based in Potter Valley. Full Circle Wool is committed to a healthy future, working to connect people with the land they inhabit in a deep, meaningful, and nourishing way. So let's talk about that. Talk about the evolution of full circle wool and the values behind it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I often I'm like sort of a true millennial in the like entrepreneur sense. I get easily distracted by different ideas. I'm like, I got to try that out. Uh, So I was already doing contract raising. And I was, you know, working on raising sheep and uh, thinking about the wool and selling the wool. I was also working for Fibershed, uh, which is based in Marin, um, but they cover all of Northern California, basically like north of San Luis Obispo up to the Oregon border. So I was talking to a lot of different ranchers and farmers and people who were working with wool and learning about all the different parts of the fiber system that is in our area and thinking about it like a local food shed, but for fiber and for textiles. And um, in looking at all the parts, there's this really great, um, what do you call those? Like icon image um, that fiber shed has that it's basically like Like a a logo, like their logo. Uh, no, I'm going to, I'm not, I'm going to think of the word as soon as okay. we hang out. All right. Um, <laughs> it's this image of, I have it like on every product description on my website. It's this image that's basically a clock face. It's a circle. And at each point where there would be a number, it's, it shows like a different part of the fiber system. So, you know, at, uh, one o'clock or whatever it is, there's the farmer, rancher at two o'clock there is the next step in the process which is the shearing and on and on and it shows it as a cycle so that was part of the inspiration for the name full circle wool um was looking at that cycle but is that an infographic road, marie is that the word infographic. Infographic. thank you That's why they let me host this show infographic yeah <laughs> So on our infographic, we have this beautiful circle of wool basically going soil to soil, right? So you have the soil, you have the grass, you have the sheep, you have the wool, you have the processor, the crafter designer, the user. And then at the very end of that cycle, you have the wool that can just go back into the compost and become soil again. It's amazing, honestly. It's very beautiful. But along the way, there are uh, bottlenecks in that cycle. And that's what I was looking at. And the main bottleneck that I was seeing was in the processings. There's like a lot of wool. There's a lot of land, a lot of grass, a lot of wool. Um, At the time 
I was looking at this California. It's probably changed a little bit, but um, at the time California was growing roughly like 3 million pounds of wool every year. And uh, less than 1% of that was actually being uh, used and sold in the state. Like the bulk of it, roughly 80% was going overseas to China. It was getting blended with other different fibers, kind of just getting lost in the global supply chain. And then 20% of it uh, was just not getting used at all. It was either being thrown out or stored forever in a barn or garage or burned or something like that. And like I said, less than 1% of it was actually being used. Um, That's so surprising because it seems like that would be such a specialty product. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, it is now. <laughs> um, <laughs> Great. I'm so glad to hear it. <laughs> I know. Well, so at the time, you know, like there there was at least some amount of infrastructure. While I was working for Fibershed, this was like 2016 to 19. There was a reasonable enough amount of infrastructure for fine fiber that a lot of the work that Fibership was doing was to connect fine fiber growers with fine fiber users, designers, that kind of thing, using fabric uh, typically. Um, but for the coarse wool, we we had this program, so we're going to talk about in a, a minute, the climate beneficial program through Fibershed, but we had a number of producers who were growing coarser wool that wasn't great for clothing that uh you know that was the wool that just naturally came from that area typically coastal areas don't raise fine fiber like the the merino type of sheep just does not thrive in a coastal environment they need a hot dry environment and is it also true that to get that you know highest quality fiber the animal basically needs to wear like a protective coat while you're they're growing that fleece or (laughs) It depends. It depends. Uh, for for me, I have definitely found I need to coat my sheep um, now that I'm out here. Mm. Uh, that was not that was another fun moment of moving out from Bodega Bay to Potter Valley. Was in Bodega, I did not not have trouble with things like stickers and seeds and burrs. Well, and welcome kind of to thing. the land of burrs and stars. Yeah. <laughs> yep, like that stuff. Yeah, the moment I let the sheep off on our place in Potter Valley, within like 10 minutes, they were just Velcro coated. You're like, regret, regret. <laughs> yeah, so I, ha- I had to learn about getting um, getting coats on the sheep. Um, but we have started to do that here. It can really vary. I mean, when you have like a flock of several thousand sheep, no, you cannot coat those sheep. Um, but also at that scale... Um, the processing for that, they're they're able to cope with that. They can deal with that. Got it. Um, so as you were saying, kind of the natural fibers that are produced around here tend to be a little more coarse. Uh, on in the coastal area, okay. yeah. Um, the yeah, it's basically your more sort of coarse wooled sheep that thrive along the coastal area and that are are doing really important work along the coastal area too. Of of grazing down those grasses that um, are used to being grazed down. They need to be grazed down. Um, but like I said, those producers, 
they were climate beneficial and they were like, Hey, fiber shed, we've got our climate beneficial wool. What are we going to do with it? You know? Um, and I think I, I was in this place where I was sort of trying to, I felt like I was trying to convince other people to use it. And finally I just, I ended up convincing myself and was like, all right, that's it. I'm doing it. <laughs> Nobody else is going to do your own hands. Yep. Fine. I'll do it. I'm working part-time for fiber shed. I'll part-time do this other project in addition to my sheep. So I started sourcing coarse wool from um, growers. At the time, it started with Lauren Poncha from Stemple Creek Ranch and Jim Jensen, uh, who were both in Tamales, and they were raising um, Suffolk Dorsets, crosses, I think. Um, and so I was buying their wool from them and sending it through the supply chain and getting it made into batting, which is basically just um, washed and carded wool. It's just fluff, essentially. Um, and then experimenting with that, making different things. I ended up doing some felting with it. And then I ended up um, creating a, a bunch of different products. The, the main one of which I'd say like the best seller is wool dish sponges. Ooh, um, I've also made other things that um, sold it just as batting or made, you know, comforters with it, pillows, um, potholders, all kinds of things, coasters. Um, but the wool sponges are now the thing that we've really started to take on um, like a greater commercial scale. Um, and in fact, you can now find them at the, co-op market at ukiah natural foods at ukiah um, natural foods what's the lifespan of a wool sponge uh typically six months to a year that is good yeah they last a long time wool as you might already know uh has natural properties in it that are antimicrobial antifungal they're odor repelling um, so the wool does a really good job of like not getting smelly, um, not getting gross. It doesn't like synthetic sponges after a few weeks, they start to get smelly. They start to like crumble away. Um, that doesn't happen with the wool sponges. Um, they just, they, they get a little bit smaller. So I say on the package, you know, don't cut these in half. They're cut to the size that they are because after a few uses, it's kind of like using a washcloth for the first couple of uses. And then after that, they tighten up and they get more coarse and scrubby. Um, and they're like about the size of a typical dish sponge. Um, but yeah, if you go, Start if you shop at the co-op. People's instincts might be like, this is too them. big. I'm going to cut it. And then it's too small. So I'm, I love that you put that right on the packaging. Very smart. What do you do with your Wissant black wool? That actually, that gets sold um, through... Um, a sheep sponsorship program. So kind of like a CSA or a farm club. Um, that's really specific for people who tend to be um, people who want to do their own hand processing of wool. So people who are hand spinners or um, people who are felters, things like that. And that's, that's in that way, that's part of my way of sort of engaging people in the process of raising sheep as opposed to just me just raising a product and selling it and then never seeing it again. Um, it's more about the relationships um, that are built between the animal and the land and me 
and and then building a relationship with the person who's going to use it and having them having that whole thing sort of illuminated um, and brought to life more. Has anyone ever given you a piece they've made using your wool? Uh, no, but sometimes a picture. Nice. <laughs> Pictures and are good. Then, so you mentioned fiber shed before where you, it sounds like you were working or maybe are still mm-hmm. working or volunteering. No, um, I'm a fiber shed member at this point. So it. I'm okay. not on staff anymore. Um, I'm, I'm just one of many members of so Fibershed. Fibershed is like a like a co-op. I mean, you kind of gave a brief. It's a nonprofit. Okay. Yeah. And what does Fibershed make with most of the wool they get? Uh, Fibershed doesn't actually buy or sell any wool itself, as far as I'm aware. Um, oh, I see. Maybe maybe they've bought some to do some special project or something. I'm not sure, but as a nonprofit, they're really just there to support and strengthen the fiber system. So they have a number of different programs that they do. Uh, one is the climate beneficial program. One is the producer program, which is what I was involved with when I was working for them. Um, the climate beneficial program is, it's basically meant to illuminate for people what it means to raise your fiber in a way that is helpful and beneficial to the climate as opposed to extractive or exploitative. And so it is that like that. carbon farming? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, so it does that by, it demonstrates that by using carbon, carbon farm plans. Um, so in order to be verified as climate beneficial, in fiber shed, you have to have a carbon farm plan, and a carbon farm plan comes sometimes from a local, your local RCD or NRCS office, or uh, sometimes other nonprofits um, will will do that. Or um, there's Carbon Cycle Institute in Marin. Uh, different places are are qualified to make a carbon farm plan for a producer. And then basically fiber shed just sort of monitors that they're like, you have a carbon farm plan. What have you been doing this year? What are the, you know, like the soil measurements that you've taken this year and they track all that information and make sure that everything is sort of running along smoothly. And then, you know, if you're either producing or selling climate beneficial fiber, then, um, you know, you, like you can use that logo and um, they'll help you tell that story. And sometimes they help link up um, producers with buyers, and that sort of thing. Cool. Well, speaking of climate beneficial, I know that you are an advocate for and enthusiast of, as am I, slow fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would love to shift our conversation for this um uh, last sort of a segment to slow fashion and the Mendo mending circle. If you are just joining us, this is the Farm and Garden Show. I am Elizabeth Archer and I'm interviewing Marie Hoff of Full Circle Wool. Marie has a flock of sheep, flock, right? Not herd, flock. Yeah, flock. Yep. Uh, out in Potter Valley, a special French sheep. Uh, I want to do like a little. Uh, French accent, but I'm not going to do it. Uh, <laughs> heritage breed called Wissant. 
And Marie has recently started the Mendo Mending Circle. So um, can you talk a little bit about that? And then in the context of that, we'll talk about slow fashion. Yeah, definitely. Um, We started doing a mending circle the last Sunday of the month. And uh, we started at the beginning of the year. I think our first meeting was the last Sunday in January. And it's really just a way for those of us who are interested in in mending and in slow fashion and in local fiber sheds and that kind of thing to get together and um, just kind of chat with each other and mend. And uh, not everybody necessarily does mending. Some people do other types of crafting or, or just sit and hang out. You know, it's a way of building relationships and building community relationships um, through our relationship to clothing and fiber and um, that sort of thing. So uh, this month, I'm really excited because we're going to have a mending teacher come. Um, Thus far, it's just been us getting together for a few hours last Sundays of the month um, at different places around Mendocino County. Um, But uh, this month, I think it's on June... 25th is the last Sunday of this month. So on June 25th, we're going to have a mending teacher come up and teach us uh, skills around uh, what's called applique, which is um, basically like collaging, making patterns um, and patches to put uh, on your clothes in order to mend them and then associating associated stitching techniques with that. Um, so the mending circles are free. They're just a, a free community um, event. Um, for the mending teacher, we're asking like a 10 to $20 um, donation for that. So the first half is going to be 11 to 1, and that will be uh, the class section. And then after that, from 1 to 3, we'll just have an open mending circle. And where is this happening? Because I know you rotate around the county. Yeah, we started rotating around the county because um, everybody wanted to host one. <laughs> Aw, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah um, which is fun. Um, so in June, this one, it's going to be at um, Mendo Woolen Fiber, which is across the street from the post office in Ukiah. Okay. Um, and to and sign then, up or to get more information, where can folks go? Oh, they should email me. How do they email you? My email is admin at fullcirclewool.com. That's easy enough to remember. Yeah. So slow fashion for those who maybe aren't super familiar with the concept is this idea that I'm going to say what I think it is. And then you tell me if I've matched your description more or less of it. Um, I mean, it's in contrast to fast fashion, right? Which is a really easy concept to understand because we are seeing, you know, mass produced clothes at a really staggering level. And you see if you're on social media and you follow certain types of accounts, you see like what are called like hauls, right? Where someone will spend $300 and get some ridiculous amount of like cheap, flimsy, you know, plastic based clothing and try them all on. And then within not that long, those are probably at a thrift store or in the trash. And most of what ends up at a thrift store ends up in the landfill anyway. And fast fast fashion is incredibly extractive. And the only way to make it that cheap is to exploit the people making it. 
And slow fashion is the opposite of that. It's holding on to what you have already bought. It's buying used. It's buying from sustainable brands. It's fixing what you have. Um, my biggest, con- I buy almost everything I own used at this point. Um, and I host clothing swaps twice a year, which is oh, sort great. of part of the, the slow, you know, fashion movement. So um, is that kind of like, does that vibe with how you think about it? Or is what would you add yeah. to that? Yeah, I mean, I think that what we're working on with it is sort of redeveloping a sense of, as I was saying earlier, a sense of relationship to our clothing. Um, With fast fashion, it's just, it's very, very, um, just sort of, it's immediate gratification, but it also doesn't last, and it's 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 not really building any sort of relationship with the things around you right um it's just like put this on take it off don't really think about it anymore and um that seems kind of like innocuous enough but the the sort of fallout from that are those things that you're mentioning which is environmental devastation which is you know exploitation of people who are providing the labor, um, these different things that, you know, it's, it's so easy. It would be so easy to not think about those things when you're just like looking on a rack and being like, Oh, the thing is cheap. Just put it on. Like, Oh, it fell apart. Throw it away. Who cares? It was only $5. Yeah. 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 Um, but the, the impact of that, but you know, I found that transitioning away from that can actually be a bit challenging like okay wait how do you not do that when that's what you're used to and you know one of those ways is shopping at thrift stores um but i found i found that just it didn't really feel like enough to me you know like there's there's actually like a, a lot more to it um and when I was in Guatemala, actually traveling in Guatemala, um, and this was before I'd learned anything about fiber shed or slow fashion, my that was my first introduction to these ideas, which was that um, the Mayan people there would wear their their clothes were just amazing. I mean, if you can, I don't know if you can look up online and look up. It's like Mayan clothing or something. Okay. I've, um, I've been yeah in that region of the world. Sorry, if I look distracted, it? there is an enormous jumping spider that I just noticed in the studio. Wow, cool. <laughs> I'm just keeping an eye on it because if it jumps on me, I will scream. And that might make <laughs> funny radio, but <laughs> it seems to have gone in the opposite direction. Carry on. Well, I'm excited you've introduced an element of... Um, uh, suspense live radio anything can happen i know i'm like gonna back up a little bit (laughs) it's disappeared from view anyway keep going it's just hiding from you anyway um so when i was there yeah like the people um their their clothes were just like fantastic they were amazing and um and i started learning about it that like like different groups had different 
clothes. So you could like tell who somebody was based on what they were wearing. Like if you're married or unmarried and like your family's pattern or yeah, what family you belong to, what job you had, maybe what tribe you belong to. Um, so, so it was an identifier. It was a cultural identifier. Um, but it was also just like, yeah, so, so beautiful. Um, and you know, somebody at, at one point told me like, you know, like their, their clothes are, are really expensive. And I was like, I don't doubt it. They look like very in depth. And they were like, yeah, but they only like, you only own two sets of clothes. Right. Like you literally own one set of clothing for, um, six days a week. And then you have one outfit for the the sabbath like one one day a week and And, you wash your other clothes that day and you yeah and you get like you get those clothes when you're a young person you know like when you're a young adult and that's it like one outfit they told me cost roughly two thousand dollars us wow i mean and and these are people who are like they're not making a lot of money you know like $2,000 $2,000 US is to them is like not what even what it is to us. And I can't even imagine like most people here spending $2,000 on one outfit. Um, but like, but like that was it. And like, if it got dirty or if it got stained or if it got torn, you fixed it. Right. <laughs> it wasn't like you didn't take it down to Goodwill and then get another one. Like that was it. That was your clothing for your life. Um. And that way of thinking at that point, I was just down the rabbit hole with thrift stores. I was not, um, I wasn't really thinking about clothing with, with, with that kind of a relationship. Um, thrift stores can be problematic too, because like, it's sort of become trendy to shop at them. And so they've gotten really expensive. And then the people who really need access to that level of, you know, price tier can't afford it. And so then they're the one, you know. Yeah, it's true. It's definitely true. Um, but so with mending, that really um gave me more insight into like how do I have this deeper relationship with my clothing, you know, because even with the thrift store clothing that I was getting, you know, it would wear out and then it then it would be done. But um when I started looking at getting clothes made with actually like really really nice quality um things you know getting them tailored like having somebody make a dress for me by hand and getting the fabric from a local producer where the cotton or the wool had been grown in California um when those things would get like a stain or a tear in them there was no way that that was you know, going to go then to like, no way. Yeah. Um, and that to me, that just kind of like deepens that relationship of being able to mend it because at the same time that you're mending this item of clothing, you're also, you're paying attention. Like your awareness is different. It's, I really think like it's the same kind of focus that I bring to either looking at landscapes when I'm looking at grazing them or in my garden, you know, I think that that, that kind of focus I think is often really missing from our society in general. But I think people who farm, people who garden, like they know that kind of focus, the way that you are looking at a plant or an animal 
you're looking at its situation, the way that it's growing, what you're doing, how to make it grow better. Um, you're going through that sort of life cycle process with that plant. And I've actually found that with mending, I'm doing a similar thing. I'm going through a sort of a life cycle process with this item of clothing. And the more that I am in a relationship with the clothing that I'm wearing, the more that I am just feeling sort of more embedded in my own identity. Like Mm -hmm. some of the items that I have that have been mended, they're just so unique at this point. Like there's no way that you could buy that at a store. Uh, and, And I have these memories of it of like, oh, this is where that man came from. And this is how it like ended up getting like that. And, you know, like this is what I was doing at that time in my life when I mended it. I don't necessarily remember all of the details that well, but just being able to have that kind of insight and awareness uh, in my life in the things that are around me is something that I very much desire. It's something that I'm very much looking for in a world that is full of um, just sort of, you know, distraction and and fast this and fast that, the desire to just sort of settle in and be slower and just have a greater sense of understanding and listening is something that um, I've really been able to develop with a mending practice and with going to the mending circles, it's actually like, it's helped me uh, to develop that. um, And just that practice of mending more like before we were doing mending circles, I would like sometimes maybe if I absolutely needed to mend something and uh, with the mending circles, it's just, it's, it's really, it's really interesting to, just get inspired by what other people are doing and what other people are talking about. And, you know, we see what each other is mending each time and we share pictures of what we've meant, how we've done it and like share different techniques for mending. Um, and so that it's really, it's really brought it more into the forefront of my life. Well, and it's another way to slow down if you only have so many articles of clothing you know there's not you're not spending so much of your time trying to decide what to wear you have items of clothing that you are like attached to and have memories with and fit your body well um i talk on the show not infrequently about being a fat babe and how hard it can be to get clothes that fit and the clothing swaps Mm -hmm. i host are for size 12 and up um, which is another way to also like build community and, and love for your body and find things that, that fit your body. And then mm-hmm. you do have those like memories of those pieces and they do become more meaningful than, you know, the polyester leggings that you get from Amazon. <laughs> extractive at every step of the process. And yeah, I, own, I own polyester leggings from Amazon. I'm not going to act like I don't um everybody exists on a on a spectrum but that's certainly i'm trying to move away from from that and i love the idea of the mending circle i 
have mended things in my life. I'm not great at it, but I'm inspired. And so for folks listening or maybe just tuning in, um, Marie Hoff hosts with some other locals a monthly mending circle at various locations around Mendocino County the last Sunday of every month. If you are interested in more information, you can email Marie at admin at fullcirclewool.com. And those are open to everyone. And I hope to to see you at one. Uh, Marie, we were going to take calls, but we just blew through the hour because we were having a lovely conversation. So um, if you have questions that went unanswered, you can email dj at kzyx.org. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, I would love to have you. You can also email dj at kzyx.org. Marie, I just really want to thank you for this conversation and for coming on today and um, hope to see you at a mending circle in the coming months. Absolutely. We'll see you at either June or July. Cool. Take care, Marie. We're doing a little handoff here, but first I'm going to talk about the farmer's convergence. Uh, which was the underwriting at the top of the hour. And I also want to give it an additional plug. When I first moved to Mendocino County 11 years ago, one of the very first projects I worked on was the first ever Farmers Convergence, which I think was nine years ago, maybe. Um, It was a very cool, very special event. And it's how I met a lot of people that are still my friends. The Farmers Convergence has taken a three-year hiatus and it's back, baby. They're having it on Tuesday, June 20th from 8.30 a.m. to 4 p.m. at Ridgewood Ranch in Willits, which is just a glorious location. And my understanding is that they plan to do quite a bit of it in the sort of like amazing natural resourced areas they have there. There's a pond and a redwood grove. And don't quote me on that, but those were sort of some like whisperings I heard. There's going to be amazing food, forward-thinking educational panels, breakout groups, networking opportunities. Did I mention the great food? You get breakfast and lunch. And um, it's inclusive. So if you are unable to pay, the ticket cost is low. I'm not allowed to say it on the radio for whatever reason. It's the laws of federal funding, maybe. I don't know. Uh, I won't say the price, but it is affordable. And you can find more information at goodfarmfund.org. And with that, I am going to hand it over to Eddie in the Philo studio, who is going to play music that you can hear. Thanks again for tuning in. And I will see you all again in two weeks. Take care. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.